VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we reflect on two huge derbies in the Premier League as Manchester United lay down a marker with victory over City. Arsenal beat Tottenham Hotspur, but what question marks are there over Antonio Conte? We'll talk about a raft of big stories towards the bottom with huge pressure on West Ham United and Everton. Big wins for Southampton and Wolves. We'll talk about Bournemouth, Chelsea and Liverpool on a bumper edition of the game. Hello, welcome back to the Game Podcast. I am Hugh Wizencroft alongside Alison Rudd, Gregor Robertson, and the former Chelsea striker Tony Cascarino is here as well. And we begin with the 189th Manchester derby because it was one to savour for the red half of the city. United beat the defending Premier League champion City two goals to one to avenge their 6-3 demolition at the Etihad earlier on this season. And the win means United have now lost only one of their past 19 games. Nine straight wins in all competitions as well as they came from behind at Old Trafford in incredibly fortuitous circumstances which we'll come to in a moment. But let's begin with the magnitude of the victory, if you like, Tony. Eric Ten Hag says his team still need to improve if they're really going to be successful. But I think a lot of people took away from this weekend that they feel Manchester United are in the title race. Do you agree? No, I don't. I don't think they're ready to challenge for the title. I think it's quite clear they'll make the top four. The extraordinary thing from the from watching the game was that United didn't have to play that well to beat City. If you're going to beat City, you've got to be at your best. That's always a given. If you're going to get you know through them, around them, and cause them loads of problems, you've got to be right on top of your game. They didn't need to be that, Manchester United, at the weekend, which was strange. It tells you more about where City are, I think, than United, because what Ten Hag has done has been pretty dramatic in a very short space of time. Last season, Liverpool were 34 points ahead of Manchester United. Seeing Liverpool be now 10 points behind United, the change and the amount of personnel change. I mean, watching Luke Shaw at centre-half, quite extraordinary. I think he mm. Wan-Bazaka at right-back, who's, you know, seemed to be discarded, but I thought he handled Phil Foden brilliantly. But I think, yes, definitely top four, but I still don't think they'll be the team to challenge for the title. Does anyone think they are? in a title race, is it undeniable that they could challenge, get close? Instinctively, I say no as well, but I, we also have to, you know, the, we're going to talk about Arsenal too, we have to remember that we've just reached the halfway point. It feels skewed, our perception of where yeah. we are is skewed by the World Cup and being mid, mid-January now. So we've still got, you know, maths geeks out there, 50% to play. <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite possible. It's not like, I still think Arsenal, it's not going to be a procession. And... 
Uh, I still think City have I've said it week after week, and you keep fight, firing back that this doesn't look like a team that are gonna are gonna go on the kind of run of results they so often do in the second half of the season. I still think that's eminently possible, and Man United have improved dramatically. There's no doubt about that. That now mm. they've underlined it with this performance, not this performance, this kind of well the run, but also this in this game that this kind of it's like a. Ego, remembering their stat, their kind of yeah. stature, and that, that that they can they can compete, you know, with the best teams again. I think just remembering that you know who they are actually that's what it feels like. And Man United are back in that that regard. As as you've said, Gregor, we're only we're not quite at halfway, so I don't see why they couldn't if they keep going. If you believe this is largely down to Ten Hag and the hard work he puts in, and he's analysed the squad and he knows who he likes and who he can get good play out of. Why wouldn't they incrementally just keep improving? And if they do, then surely they are going to be part of a title race. People are saying, ooh, you know, Arsenal aren't crumbling under the pressure of being ahead. But you don't even have that problem with Man United because they were so atrocious at the start of the season, written off. And so Ten Hag's been able to meddle and change attitudes almost without people noticing because... They were written off. They were so, he inherited something that was dysfunctional, and I think he's not finished. And he would say, "I'm nowhere near finished." Make the remedies, but while he's still changing stuff, they're winning. And at some point in this podcast, I hope you ask you why is it gone so mad this season? But he is a, he's applying a lot of the things that we admire in all the other clubs that are doing better than we expected. The ba- I like the balance of Man United. They looked imbalanced before, and if he's going to keep getting, if he's going to keep making improvements, I mean, Fred, you know, we've how many times have we laughed about Fred on this podcast? <laughs> but you know, it's working now because for whatever he's done to him, Fred looks like someone who wants to work incredibly hard and do unglamorous things. That's you know, that's just one player who's changed, and all the young players look more confident. I would say I'd be more positive than the rest of the panel. And I would say I think there's a possibility they could become part of a title I, race. I throw Fernandes into that as well. There's so, for, there was a huge period of his Man United career where I, I, was, I feared that he was going to be another kind of luxury player. And the work he puts in now like for the team is mm. remarkable. Mm. So there, you know, there is, you're, you're absolutely right. There's kind of huge uplift in, in individual performances and that's kind of... But I do, I do think that there has been a stripping away of you know, like individual ego from the players in that players that thought they were something under Eric Ten Hag now know what they are. As in, you you don't have to try a 50-yard ball if you haven't got it in your locker every time. Or Especially with Bruno Fernandes, who was in a midfield with McTominay and Fred predominantly. Like, you're not Zidane or you're not Pirlo. So you don't have to try and run the midfield. Now you can just do what you do, which is like, be on the half turn, try and play a through ball. Doesn't always work. Sometimes it does. Gets us up the field, gets us in behind. Try and get yourself in the box. Fred is just one of those where, again, it's like you don't have to be a ball player anymore. You, we've bought Christian Eriksen. We've bought people like Casemiro. We, we want you to get around the pitch, harry people. In a way, he's like a, a rugby union finisher in that he kind of comes on to provide energy at a particular point in the game, make sure that he's winning the ball back and giving it to the the passers. You know, and it's just one of those where I think a lot of players at Man United are far more clear on what their role is within the 90 minutes and what they are as players. I think Ten Hag's definitely helped in that regard. Yeah, I mean, look, one of my mates messaged me, mate, and he was like, oh, it's finally amazing to be a Manchester United fan again, you know, and I was kind of like, well... 
you know me. Um, <laughs> football snob that I am. I went, well, we wouldn't have beaten them if it wasn't for a ridiculous goal, which never should have stood. Never, ever should have stood. Like, that's the reality. But also, in my mind, I still have a perception of Manchester United as being a team that challenges for wins, Premier League titles, certainly gets to the last eight of the Champions League and plays with style. So there is still an element of, I mean, I think it's fantastic where we are right now in terms of a rebuild, which I said on the podcast would take three years um, for Manchester United just to be in the conversation of, could they go for a title? So I think um, if the recruitment goes well from here in January, next summer as well, I think we'll start next season and people will be saying, can Manchester United go and, and really challenge for the title this season? Which would be a season ahead of where I thought they were going to be. But, next Monday's but, podcast would be interesting. If we beat Arsenal? Oh, we've done it already this season. Listen, yeah. they're fragile. They're fragile. Would you, would you, okay, Hugh, would you not look at it from... What surprised me the most at the game was how poor City were. Yeah, same. I was astonished. But, well, I say surprised. I've been saying on the podcast, they're not this relentless beast that yeah. plays in... Like, yes, they, they are capable of incredible moments, jaw-dropping goals, but they're not this relentless team that just has you pinned back in your half for... You know, 35 minutes of a game, 40 minutes of a game where we're just sitting there and watching one team, basically, like a PlayStation where someone's like put the controller down and you're just playing against, you know, nobody and just running goals in because that's what City were. But I actually think Haaland changes their ability to do that. Uh, don't go down the Haaland route. No, no, listen, he's no chance. He's, he's written about this this uh, morning. You know, <laughs> Haaland's not the problem. I'm not saying he's no. the problem. You I'm not saying that. You mentioned PlayStation football. Mm. What on earth was Bernardo Silva doing mm. in the middle of midfield? He kept getting it turning. We've all played PlayStation, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and played it. <laughs> well, you get on the, you know, you're just turning and twisting and doing all these fake dummies. Yeah. That was Bernardo Silva. <laughs> this guy was inspirational for Man City. He made things happen. He played with purpose. This Man City team did not play with any purpose on, on Saturday. They're turning down opportunities as well to to make the most of Haaland's biggest strength, which is exploding in behind, being on the on the defender's shoulder, and explosive burst of pace in behind. And they're turning down those opportunities, and they have to do that to stretch to allow De Bruyne, Silva, Gundogan to get in those little pockets inside channels, you know, on the half turn again to look to look for those balls in behind. You have to do it in the first place to stretch out the space, and that's what Man United did well, actually. In fairness, they mm. they made it compact in midfield, and it made it. Well, look, they still had seventy percent of the ball. We're saying they, you know, they didn't dominate in the normal way. They just didn't do they anything Spain, when they had the Gregor. ball. Yeah, you're they were right. Spain in the World Cup. Yeah, <laughs> it's they obviously were. making Tony very angry. Well, because <laughs> that's what they were. This isn't what I think Man City play like. Man, Man City play with purpose that hurt you, turn you, mm. cause you loads of problems, create loads of chances. They played like Spain in the World Cup. Taking, I, well, taking play, it out on the desk, like, by the way, they, Tony Cascarino. So sorry about yeah, that. Bang, bang, bang. If your if your earphones are very sensitive, uh, go ahead, Alison. Well, I think what I'm about to describe is a symptom rather than the cause. But it looks that they of late City look like they've got too many passengers. There are too much, too often. I I forget who's on the pitch because you don't see a certain individual, whether it's Foden or whoever. You don't see them. Just don't see them. So you've got a player who has very few touches in Haaland. I know that winds you up, but he. He doesn't touch the ball very often. 19, and according to Paul Hurst in his report today. And three, three of them were from kickoffs. Exactly. And a lot of them were very deep and meaningless. 
If no one passed to me no, out, no, I'm not I blaming him. I'm just saying it's a bit odd. You've got so yeah. you've got Haaland. So you could say for periods of the game, City are sort of down to ten men because, in the sense that they're playing very, if they carry on playing the way they used to play, but they've got Haaland there and he's not touching the ball, and they used to play in a system which meant everyone touched the ball a hell of a lot. Then that's like playing with ten men, and then you've got what I'd call the youngsters who. I think because it can be quite complicated and demanding as a coach. They're may, maybe they're just paralysed by doing the wrong thing, but you often don't see them. You just don't see them. They're not. They're not touching the ball very much. So it's, there's a, a huge weight of responsibility on De Bruyne, who I don't. I think has. I think has suffered from an embarrassing World Cup. I think it went badly for him. Mm. I think he's come back a little bit miffed, maybe. Anyway, it's, it's asking a lot for him to be a genius every single time. That means there's quite a lot of problems. Yeah, I'd say Kyle Walker and Cancelo as well. They're another two are just miles yeah. behind the standards that they set. And Silva, as you said, he's been inspirational for them. He was outstanding last season, and he's, again, he's not reaching those heights. So there's a, there are a few players individually that are dipping, mm. and then there's the Haaland Foden. issue. Foden, as Foden's well. another, yeah. But but Haaland is is clearly a, an issue. It's not. We're not saying he's a problem. We're just saying he, they're not finding a way to make the most of his strengths mm. in the way they were earlier in the season and it's what is it three games without a goal maybe four now I'd still back them to, to to make it right to make it right by winning the league or just playing well I mean it's getting harder <laughs> and harder to say that but I'm going to go back to it there's 50% of the season still to go yeah okay I would still say yes yeah but I'm, you look at the alright if it's 19 games how many do they have to win to win the title in your opinion I mean, <laughs> the way Arsenal are playing could be quite a lot, yeah. yeah it could yeah, be. Yeah, and I just I don't see 17, 16, 17 wins for this City team the way they're playing at the moment. They did 18 so, uh, of 19 when they took Pip Liverpool. Yeah, but they were better. That's they, the point. Well, they had they had to get better in, at, the, at the outset. Okay, all right, we'll see how it goes. Europe, to... Europe as well. When European football comes back into play, we'll see the strength of their squad in comparison to the others, and I think that'll be another big factor, yeah. yeah. Okay, all right, let's get to it then. Uh, Bruno Fernandez's goal. Let's talk about the rule. IFAB law. Offside players become involved in active play by either obstructing an opponent's line of vision or making an obvious action which impacts on the ability of an opponent to play the ball. Those are basically the rules that I think factor into whether this goal should have stood or not. Marcus Rashford clearly offside. Manuel Akanji stepping up because he sees the player running offside. Edison, as we've, I think we've all seen, clearly focused on the fact that Rashford is pairing in on goal, sets his body as if Rashford is going to have a shot, doesn't even see Bruno Fernandes coming until he actually connects with the ball, and by then it's probably past him and in the back of the net. There is no way in my mind that any official could say that Marcus Rashford doesn't interfere with play. He basically shepherds the ball. To Bruno Fernandez's feet he's within a yard of it he thinks about shaping to shoot you actually see Edison adjust thinking Rashford's going to hit it with his left foot until he hears the shout from Bruno Fernandez. and I- I'm not one of these you know me to be like oh I'll take it I'm a Man United fan we'll take it uh, swings and roundabouts throughout the season absolutely not there's no way this goal should have stood if the Premier League title comes down to Arsenal winning it by a point because Man City missed out on one I think it's a disgrace. I know people will be like, oh, there's 19 games to play since then and all that stuff. No, it doesn't matter. Goals like this shouldn't stand. PGMOL are obviously going to come out and say, well, we uh, we maybe got that one wrong the next time they do a report. Or they, don't, they don't tell us the exact decisions. 
as you can a, back it up in the law. That's the problem. The law is an ass. You can't back it up in the law. You I'm sorry. Can. No, you can. In, you can interpret this law by using the wording. You can interpret it very well, the badly. Word, the wording, very ba- the very badly forms the law. You, you can interpret it very badly and say, "Oh, it just about fits inside the wording of the law." So the law but, is bad. No, no, no. The interpretation is bad because you'd have to only. I would argue both are bad. No, no, no. But you would have to own. You would basically have to sit down with the one incident and the law and say, oh, yeah, it fits. And then forget about the history of football on every other football match that's ever been played to be able to interpret it in that way. You'd have to you'd have to forget the opinion of footballers everywhere to interpret it in that way. You would, you would. You'd have to ignore. Yeah, but you're so the surprised by that. So, no, th- this is what happens every week. <laughs> this is what the the law, and particularly offside law, is a joke. It's a joke. Well, it, it's meant to be factual. That's part of the problem. That the offside rule is so factual that there's no discussion. Well, it clearly. I mean, the, even the, if you start, if you take it back to Casemiro on the ball, he clearly plays the ball to Rashford. His face, his face is fixed on that pass. He passes it. Rashford clearly looks to the the linesman, knows that he's offside, and then thinks, "Well, I can't touch this." But there's you can literally throw, throw a blanket over the four players: two centre halves for Man United and two forwards for for City. Uh, sorry, two centre halves for City and the two forwards for United. So it to me, I just didn't get it. And look. It's one of the weirdest goals I've ever seen in the Premier League because I just didn't get. And there is, and I agree with you that this is a really vague area that we're heading to to say this goal should have been stood, uh, should have been given. I just, I just found it a really weird goal. Well, just just to play devil's advocate, we're comparing how we're talking about it now and having listened to all the protagonists say, you know, oh, as, as a defender, I, I, you know, I, I, I acted knowing he was going to be offside and I had to play accordingly and. Managers saying, you know, my keeper was definitely waiting for the shot, so he's interfering. But the the law, as it stands, does not cover the mentality or what you're thinking. It's about phys- physicality. So if you're on a screen watching this and thinking, has he made an attempt to touch the ball that impedes other people's ability? No, it doesn't, does it? It physically doesn't stop I would argue, everyone else I, from touching the I ball. I would argue it does. I would argue Rashford's actions... It's only about actions, their mentality. It, it doesn't impede their ability. The law says, does it impact their ability? If Marcus Rashford doesn't run after that ball, Edison just runs out and smashes through it and puts it into Rose Ed. He stays waiting to make a save because Rashford is chasing but after that's the a, ball. That is a mental decision. That is a mind exactly. thing, she, not Alice a physical thing. Right. Alice is absolutely right. Because you, if we're talking about interfering in play, as a defender... Any attacker is interfering in your mindset, and where thereby you know impacts where you stand on the pitch. So it's the same with the wolves. The wolves goal the other night. We spoke yeah. about that. It, it, how you can process in that in that kind of time that he's offside, or how you how this can you could even is... know that Rashford was going to slow up, therefore he would have had to run back quicker to try and tackle uh, Fernandez, who was behind them. He didn't even know was behind them. You could argue that Walker should have been covering around anyway, but. But Walker, all, all these things can, Walker, cannot possibly be but Walker, processed in Walker, a human mind. Walker bases <laughs> the angle that he chases the ball down at, exactly. on, on Rashford, exactly the not on Bruno saying. Fernandes. Exactly. No, but, but as I'm saying, when he's chasing back, he chases back thinking Rashford's going to shoot. He almost runs to cover the goal line. He almost runs behind his goalkeeper. Bruno Fernandes is right beside him. If he thinks he's going to shoot, he could have cut across him, barged him off the... He could have interfered with Fernandes in some way earlier on in the play if he, if he was the only player there and he probably would have 
you know, if Rashford wasn't there, I just, this is, listen, there's no point analysing the situation. For me, it's the officials. There's no way we're all looking at the law now that the officials went over and had a conversation and went, you know, the law says um, impacts the ability of, and and they never did that. They just went, did he touch the ball or not? Which is ludicrous. Doesn't matter whether he touched the ball or not. Look, look it's another. What, so what happens further down the line if this goal is given? Then you say to your forwards, "Well, don't worry. Stand in that offside position, but don't attempt to get the ball. We'll play balls behind you, but you will become alive as soon as their defender get, has the ball or you get on the ball." And that would be, be bothering me. That's completely changing the dynamics of football. It, totally. You, you, you'd start seeing defenders leaving passes, leaving balls yeah. coming into the area if they think a player is half a yard offside and then only for VAR to say, actually, they were an inch onside and it's a goal. It's like you're changing the way that the game is fundamentally played. Defenders are going to have to sit on the six-yard box, basically. And it just makes no sense. I've, you know, I've always thought that it should be very simple and you can be, you could be anywhere. It doesn't matter. If you're offside, you're offside. And I know that people say that stepping back in time and if someone's standing right out in the touchline, I would rather that. I don't care. I would rather... That some goals were lost and it was simple black and white because if you're leaving it in the officials' hands to interpret this the way that we want them to interpret it, we're in cloud cuckoo land because they don't do it. And they show, they're showing it week after week. They don't interpret the laws of the game, which are so complex, in the way that most of us watching at home want them to be interpreted by the kind of feeling of what, yeah. what is right and wrong. They fail to do so, so make it simple for them. Let's talk about, well, we, we already spoke about Manchester City's slip-up, I think, and that, of course, has allowed Arsenal to extend their lead at the top of the table to eight points. Well, that coupled with a very poor performance from Tottenham Hotspur, particularly in the first half. Uh, they lost 2-0 at home in the North London derby. Arsenal winning this fixture away from home for the first time since 2014. Their manager, Mikel Arteta, was in the team on that day. Alisson Spurs never showed up. Three wins in nine Premier League games now. I think it's concerning. Okay, right, maybe I'm harsh. They showed up with 40 minutes left. They had a decent second half. They had some very good opportunities. But ultimately, chasing the game two goals down was going to be very, very difficult. Yeah, but that has been thus far the story of Spurs, hasn't it? That they start they start okay for a few minutes, then they don't play very well, then they concede, then they get a little ignition and they go again. And I thought that more or less is exactly what happened, except they were playing possibly the champions elect who, did, who weren't um, who were ready for it. A lot of teams that have faced Spurs for some reason haven't quite been able to be ready for it when they turn it on. I thought Spurs played some nice stuff in the second half. They weren't abject at all, but they came up against a team that are quite good. I mean, I, mean, I can't believe we're saying all this about Arsenal, who do enough, establish a lead expect the onslaught and are really calm about it have faith in the goalkeeper have faith in the system really relaxed I think that probably annoyed Spurs more than anything was that this isn't how it's supposed to evolve this is a derby I thought Arsenal took the sting I know all the things that happened afterwards which showed it really was a derby and there was a strength and depth of feeling but Arsenal played like it wasn't a derby they only let it show after after the final whistle I, don't, I think this said this this game said more about Arsenal than it did about Spurs. This is the same old Spurs. I didn't think it said that much about Arsenal. I thought that they didn't have to do much. Spurs. Didn't no, but if you, ride, that lead. if you ride, if you can ride the North London derby, which you never win, 
yeah, but you away from home. But if you can, if you can, if you goals. can coast that, if you can coast that mentally, then then you that's the sort of thing that champions do, the isn't goal, it? The goals change game the game, and and yeah, look, they, of course they were by far the better team in the first half, but they were gifted the first goal. It was a shambles from Spurs' point of view, and then Spurs kind of go inside go inside themselves a little bit, clam up, and then the second goal. Again, the kind of space that they're given, the space that allowed both to to Saka out wide and behind Cessignon and to and to Odegaard in the place where he's most threatening and dangerous is embarrassing, really. So I don't think Arsenal had to do that much to establish the lead. And yet they, they defended the box well in the second half. I don't think Spurs really did much except Kulusevsky swinging balls. Yeah. To the back post that were too far or missing or hitting but the front Ramsdale man. Ramsdale had such a good match. How would he have such a good match if he didn't have stuff to do? <laughs> No, I, listen. I'd say one of the saves was a save that you go. That's that's a really good save. Which one? Cessna one with his foot. With his foot. Yeah, yeah. When he's yeah. he's, he's almost poked his toe up to save it. That was a really good save. But Otherwise, they were. But, but this is what this is one of the reasons that I thought it was quite strange. The Arsenal performance. The I, I said it to a mate immediately after the game, who's an Arsenal fan. I said, "Were you not slightly concerned with the ease with which you gave away three very good chances? Harry Kane's header." All right, on another day, he glances at either side of Ramsdale. It was straight at him, but it was a very good opportunity that Tottenham didn't have to work hard for. Hyung Min Son, again, it was just that they didn't have to work hard to have what, you know, on another day, they could have easily scored all three. And Sessignon, okay, it was a brilliant save from Ramsdale. But again, Tottenham didn't do much to create that goal-scoring opportunity. And ultimately, you need every player, and they needed Aaron Ramsdale to help them through this game. And they obviously had a two-goal lead. But um, I agree with you, Gregor, in that, I think Arsenal were in third gear, really, for the entire game. To be in third gear I, I, in the North London derby means you're doing something right. No, I know. <laughs> but that's what I'm agreeing but with. He said they didn't have to do much to win the game. Okay. I agree, they didn't have to do much to win the game. But on another day, could have been a draw. Could have well, been a Tottenham win. Let, let, well, Eddie Nkete could have had as many goals as that's Harry true, Kane. That's true. Okay, that, that let's start true. there. We could start should, with... Should have, should have. Should Antonio <laughs> Conte come into question for starting with a formation that allowed Arsenal more space? Because yes. they were clearly outnumbered in midfield. Yeah. That was an issue. I would say Ben White played like he's probably the best right back in England at, at, at this moment. I think Ben White was terrific in the game. Um, his handling of Yumin Sung and his relationship with Saka was fantastic in the first half. Um, Zinchenko. Zinchenko was, I think it was the 44th minute he gave away his first ball. Now, he didn't have a particular... He clearly ran out of legs because he's been injured. He clearly ran out of steam in the second half. But his first 45 minutes, I think I counted to the 41st min- minute and I went, that's his first ball he's given away. He was, he was... And he kept drifting into midfield, outnumbering. Yeah. Now, Antonio Conte is a very experienced manager. And now you have to ask why they're always going behind. It has to be the system and the formation. I'm not a great lover of Longley. I'm not a particularly great lover of Eric Dyer. And when you put Christian Romero in there, who's a who's a good player but incredibly reckless, you're asking for trouble against Arsenal. I don't think this Tottenham team has any of the hallmarks of an Antonio Conte side, really, apart from the formation. I mean, the, even if you don't have your best team out, I saw the two starting lineups and thought Tottenham are definitely losing today. But um, I didn't see any mentality from Spurs in that game you didn't see anything that you thought well at least he's given them you know a stronger mindset I think they were scared and they were waiting to be beaten I think the Hugo Lloris error is them all they're fearful of what might be losing 5-0 at home in the North London derby they woke up that morning and thought this could be bad clearly 
there's one big thing, and I'd love to know what you all think about this, is because players get substituted a lot. You know, you get players who are out, outfield and they get substituted. Now, I'm thinking at half-time, after Hugh Lewis has made that mistake, I'm thinking, you've got to sub your goalkeeper. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, I'm thinking this. You know, now, no, no one will sub their goalkeeper. Well, this goalkeeper's making mistakes, and by the way, he's made a few in recent weeks and quite a number, surely you don't enter the second half with the goalkeeper that's causing you enough problems because that goal, is it, that's bog standard. That's just absolute standard for goalkeeping. But Lloris played well after the gaff. Oh, come on, Alison. <laughs> to be fair, James Gearbrandt's piece about this this morning is really good. He's, he's, he's made the point that he's, he's the captain, remember? Yeah. So you're also bringing off your captain, Tony. I think you're maybe asking a bit much there. <laughs> and then Captains never get subbed then. But certainly not a goalkeeper captain, no. Well, no <laughs> I can't no, remember one. Hold it. You can, okay, Greg, I get what you mean. and I, I'm, It's the respect thing. And no, yeah. Okay, I get all that. He needs replaced. But if you are playing in a game and he's already made a number of errors and you get to half-time and you think, I just can't do it. Who was the sub-goalkeeper? Fraser Forster? I don't care who it was. Okay, if it was well, an outfield you, player. We've got to make a decision on whether you think it will actually improve the situation if you bring the goalkeeper off. Well, you can't just punish. You're a centre forward, and you miss loads of chances, and you keep getting them. What will happen to you? Yeah, but if there's no yeah, but no <laughs> buts, no cheek buts. No, but you got you know if you got to try and improve the situation as a coach. So surely you think, oh, do you know what? I've got someone on the bench who will score me a couple of goals. This person's missing loads of chances. However, if you've got someone on the bench who you think's going to miss even more. And maybe Antonio Conte thought Forster would be worse. I think you're part of the goalkeeper's it, 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 it might not have been yeah. Fraser Forster, by the way. I can't remember who the subkeeper was. But it, he might not have thought that replacing Lloris would have actually helped the situation. So James is also bored into the, the kind of data to back up like what we've all seen. And he said that between 2018 and 2021, the, you know, the, the kind of expected saves, he was, he was worth a combined 26 goals. And now he's kind of, this season, he's cost Tottenham 2.3 by the data, and he's let. He's also had three, three major errors before this, and also one. You know, one of them was against. Uh, was it Wills last week? Wills yeah. recently. So, like, we've, he's always been a goalkeeper who, like, he makes those saves. We saw some in the second half. He, he's he's a good shot stopper, but he's got a clanger in the locker. The problem is the clangers are becoming far more frequent, and and it's hugely now, costly. It, yeah, and it's now a, it's now a big problem for them, and it's it underlined by the fact he's the captain. You're talking yeah. about all these things about leadership and yeah. belief that you can win against Arsenal and your captain is the goalkeeper who's just chucked in the first goal. I, I did get to the end of this game. and In fact, I was watching Antonio Conte even at 2-0 down. I thought, he's not going to be the manager next season. He's not going to be their manager next season. It's just a big... He's just not. He's just not. He wants to walk away with his reputation intact and say, it was the club, not me. And I actually think if they give him loads of money and the situation doesn't change, whose fault is it going to be then? And I actually think the club don't want to give him loads of money on what they're seeing at the moment. Why would you? He hasn't committed. We, we've been through this before, but he hasn't committed to, to the club. So why would they? Why would they? This is a club that customarily doesn't stick its hand very deep into its pockets, and when it does, it hasn't really gone that well. So what are you going to do with Antonio Conte? Spend loads of money on twenty-eight-year-old plus players to make him happy when he hasn't actually shown you that you should. You know, you hear the fans going back him. He's one of the best in the world, but. If he wasn't Antonio Conte, on the basis of what you've seen as the Tottenham manager, you wouldn't back this coach. I mean, he's, know, he's got five months. He's okay, isn't he? I mean, he's. <laughs> I'm not seeing that. I don't think they're going to win a cup. I don't think they're going to. I don't think they're going to do anything particularly special. He's got Son. He's got Kane. 
All right, he's uh, missing some players. I think both things can be true. He's, he's look, we know he's a he's a great manager, and if you gave him the money and you gave him a bit of time, he probably would eventually get there with Spurs, or he'd get them competing, he'd get them closer than they have been. But do they want to do it? That's the bigger question, and I think probably you're right. The answer should be no, because when you're investing that money, you want to see some sort of long-term vision uh, project. Everyone throws that word around, but that's what you want to see. That's what you see with Arsenal. They gave them the time, and they invested it in a project, in a kind of vision for Arsenal as a future. Mm. You're never doing that with Conte. We've discussed this recently. That's just never his way. He'd leave or he'd demand more the next year. So Spurs, Spurs, you know, they, they missed, the, missed that boat with Pochettino. <laughs> I keep going back to that in my mind when I'm watching these games. You think everything that Arsenal are now, Spurs kind of could have maybe been with Pochettino if they'd given him the money that they've given all these guys who've come in since him, since yeah. and like just been wrecking balls. Conte, I mean, the thing is, Conte, I mean, there's a parallel with Hugo Lloris. Conte looks like he might just have been over the hill slightly because the managers who are doing really well at the moment aren't often with far fewer resources. You can really see the stamp of the coach on the team. You can really, you really feel like the players are playing for the manager, and there's a symbiosis there. And you feel like, oh, you know, they've 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 got the right the right chap in charge there. It's working. Players are enjoying. Talk about the manager all the time. Say how they give the manager gives them freedom and makes them feel they're important and they can talk to him and they know what they're expected to do. I, I think you're right, you. I, I look at Spurs and I don't see a reflection of the manager, not just tactically, just that I don't see... <laughs> when he comes out afterwards, it's as though he's talking about an entity that has nothing to do with him. Like that series of going behind, then picking it up and getting um, a win in the second half. He would say, he would often say, oh, I don't know how, we, I don't know why we do that. I don't know how that's happening. You don't hear that from the coaches who are doing what we would consider a more consistent job with their I think teams. that's a fair point, and, and stylistically too, you know, football goes through cycles, and you, we look at all the best teams now, and there are so many kind of rotations, and it's hard to even pin down the formation sometimes. We're looking at Spurs and Conte, and it's it's the team that, you know, he won, won the league with Chelsea, it's still the same sort of rigid back three, and you're relying on having the right wing-backs, which is not an easy hole to fill, and Spurs still have not filled it. And a kind of a talismanic goal scorer, and, and you know Spurs have one of those things. How many so. how many uh, Spurs defenders would anybody keep? Romero, that's it. Right, even Romero. I mean, Romero's a good player. He's he's a high potential player. I'm sorry. I mean, brainless at times in terms of diving in and in, increasing the pressure on his team. I think part of that's frustration, though, in the the situation. That's like a World Cup winning goalkeeper. You got a World Cup winning centre half. Okay, then you go into (laughs) midfield. How many of the midfielders would you keep? There are good players in the midfield that were missing. Bentancur, you'd keep. Yeah, Bentancur. Basuma's been a disappointment. Um, Hoiber, you'd you'd keep based on what he's done. But what are they going to do? I think is a bigger question. It's all. They they deserve to be kept as Tottenham players, but where are they going to take you? It's mainly top heavy at Spurs, isn't it? Yeah. You know, we've gone through the goalkeepers and the back four into the midfield. And certainly in the back four, I'm not a fan of many of their defenders, fullbacks, wingers, whatever you want, wingbacks, centre half positions. So I think there lies the biggest problem for them because top-heavy, they're going to get goals. We had this conversation about Manchester United and we've just had the same conversation about how Eric Ten Hag has made players look like the players we kind of knew they could be. So some of that is on Conte too. We can't just... You can't always just pick out out him and say he's not good enough, he's not good enough. It's on the manager to make them 
the best version of themselves. Well, and he's not doing Varane it. is not a hard deal, is it? Varane's well, he looked, a... he looked like half the Varane that we knew for yeah, a long time. He's, he's had of... numerous injuries, uh, Greg, all his career. If you get a fit Varane, you've got a completely different player. And that's what he's been. Luke Shaw, I'd go along with you. But Luke Shaw, there's Rashford. been a hell of a... Yeah, there's been a number of improvements. That's managers' jobs. But I, what I see of Spurs is... Basically, I think Conte knows he hasn't got a particularly good squad. He talked about bringing two £70 million players plus every season and to just to get there. And I'm not sure the club are thinking, what, just to get there? But they do. I think you look at their squad, That's, I mean, and that's another takeaway from this game, but you look at the depth at Tottenham and there isn't much. And ultimately, it's going to take a long time to overhaul that squad and a lot of money. And I just don't think Antonio Conte is the person to, who's got the patience for that. Mm. There were good managers available to Tottenham, up and coming, who I think could have taken the club on a journey a bit like Pochettino did. If they could have replicated that, I think it would have been a positive for Spurs. And I think that's their next decision. Um, We'll see who's available whenever Antonio Conte decides that he's going to manage Juventus or uh, Inter Milan again or someone else big because, um, you know, ultimately big clubs will want him. Still, I think, um, despite the fact he's not going very well. Going very well for Arsenal, though. A very good afternoon for Arsenal. Eight points clear at the top of the Premier League. You can read Martin Samuel in the Times at the moment, who's been who's been talking about Arsenal bucking a trend with their spending if they were to go on and win the Premier League and what it would mean for the, the big spenders, the big earth spenders in the Premier League. It's an interesting one. You can read it in the Times right now, so download the Times app wherever you get your apps from. Up next, we're going to bounce around some of the important results towards the bottom of the Premier League and the pressure that is building on certain managers. Stay with us. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So plenty of other big storylines uh, in the Premier League this weekend. Let's start with Southampton. They came out on top in the relegation six-pointer at Everton. Capped a huge week for them. They had slumped to bottom of the table. They're still there now. 
but they had basically no new manager bounce under Nathan Jones a week ago, and their fans were very, very unhappy. Since then, an FA Cup win over Crystal Palace, an EFL Cup victory over Manchester City, and this win that moves them one point from safety are all massive for Jones and those Southampton fans. But I did want to talk about one change that Jones has made. Clearly, we saw it with two goals this weekend. James Ward-Prowse in a more advanced position, paying off. Yeah, it was the uh, Shaka at Arsenal, wasn't it? The idea of asking a player that clearly is a great finisher, especially around the box, that giving him a chance. Do you know what the most amazing thing at the weekend was? I went on the BBC uh, website and was reading about the game. I, I, I watched it afterwards. James Ward-Prowse was given 5.97 in their ratings, right? And I'm laughing. It was at the very bottom. And I'm thinking, he must have given away every ball apart from his two goals to get a 5.97 rating. Now, I was laughing to myself. But going back to your point, <laughs> is which, obviously, his ability with his feet to get in positions and score goals. He was Southampton's top goal scorer last year. So this is nothing new. Nathan Jones has recognised his ability to get goals. Because what would you, where would you want someone who can finish? You'd want him in the opposition's area. Mm-hmm. Frank Lampard made a whole career out of this finishing. I played with David Platt, fabulous finisher. Platty wasn't a natural forward, but he was a fabulous finisher. And watching James Ward-Prowse, that ability to finish, for me, it's always a very smart idea to say, if you've got a finisher in your club, and why I had it with Dennis Irwin, you never did a training session with Dennis Irwin, who was a fullback, because he'd embarrass you with his finishing. It was extraordinary. Right foot, left foot. He was a fullback. But if you've got Dennis in forward areas, he'd score goals. Mm. And and that's how I see James Ward-Prowse. I think smart play by Nathan Jones, but allow him to do that type of Shaka role for Arsenal. There are a lot of players who can play in different positions on the pitch, by the way. It's not just, you know, Luke Shaw playing centre-half. I've argued Declan Rice as centre-half for Yonks mm. because I think there are certain players who can play different positions that actually you can get more out of them. I think it's been a big positive for Nathan Jones this week. Um, Just to change the mindset, it was going in that kind of direction after four Premier League games, fans saying that he should be sacked and it was a huge error from the club. So he's just had a little bit of response, a little bit of a fight back this week, but ultimately only one of those games was in the Premier League and he's going to need to, I think, improve their form from here on out. By the way, of course, playing against an Everton side, which is one of the worst in the Premier League at the moment. Uh, And there is no positivity there at the moment. Um, They go to West Ham on Saturday. Make or break for their manager, Frank Lampard's future, wouldn't you say? Make or break for both managers, possibly, seems to be the word. I think think the narrative's developed that West Ham will not sack David Moyes, but I think they might have to if they feel that... I mean, the feeling is if they lose to Everton, oh my goodness, who are they going to get points against? Because Everton are in an absolutely appalling place. And there's also the idea that Frank Lampard the fans do recognise it's not his fault they're, they're not protesting or throwing pies at him are they they're throwing they're throwing metaphorical and literal pies at the board so what what happens politically in those situations the board are under huge pressure and I mean an embarrassing situation what would you do if you were in politics you would deflect by sacking the manager and saying it was him not us I think they'd be foolish if they thought that would fool anybody but that is why it's not necessarily a case that if Lampard loses that game, he's gone. Because, ironically, you're not probably not going to appease the fans by sacking someone they're not actually asking for the head of. 
So just to bring you up to date um, on what Alison is referring to there, the chairman, Bill Kenwright, Denise Barrett-Baxendale, the chief executive, the finance director, Grant Ingalls, and Graham Sharp, of course, a legendary player from Everton, also on the board, stayed away from Goodison Park at the weekend. It had been reported that Barrett-Baxendale's car was attacked and she was physically manhandled by a fan after their most recent home game uh, ended in that 4-1 defeat by Brighton. We also saw after this match... Anthony Gordon's car blocked outside the stadium. There were videos on social media of him and Yeri Mina having discussions with angry fans in the street. And you feel like it's becoming a pretty untenable situation for a lot of people at Everton. Yeah, I was just going to say, Everton, Everton feel like a broken club. West Ham feel like a club that are in a, a big rut. But actually, it doesn't matter. Whatever the situation, whatever's going on in the background, one of them needs to start winning games. They both need to start winning games. And the easiest way sometimes to affect the change in that is by changing the manager. So they're both on their last, you know, very last thinnest piece of ice. West Ham um, and David Moyes beaten 1-0 by Wolves at Molyneux at the weekend. Wolves out of the relegation zone for the first time in three months. West Ham drop into the bottom three. One point from 21 available. Moyes actually said his team deserved more in this one. Does he deserve more time, Tony? Well, he deserves more time in the fact that he's kept them up before and he's gone through difficult times and they called him back to the club because they went sideways after he left. I think he's shell-shocked. I think he just can't believe how this season's panned out. If you listen to some of his talk and the way he spoke just months ago, that he's still talking getting into Europe. Mm. And he really must have believed that, to talk in that manner where... He's looking at his team and thinking so many of them have gone backwards this year. I mean, Sushak in midfield has got nowhere near the levels of what he's capable of. Jared Bowen's another one. You could say Declan Rice. You know, he was sensational last year for, for West Ham. He's played OK, but he's way better than OK. I think he's made some strange decisions in the transfer market. I'd agree. I think that has cost him dearly. I mean, letting people like Diop go away, go and play elsewhere. You know, and I just... It just feels really weird. I think David's got caught in the headlights with his team. He can't quite work out how to get the best out of whoever plays. Ben Rama's very in and out as a player, mm. which is he can be terrific on his day, yeah. but he can also be in and out. Antonio was that striker that they need another one. Kesvi gets injured and he was scoring goals and playing well. And the moment they bring someone in, his form drops. And so it's. I just think he's got really caught out by lots of things that have happened. I agree with Gregor. It's, it is a rut, but I do believe that West Ham will stay a bit longer. And you have a, there's no better, perfect game for you to have a relegation rival to try, especially it's his ex-club as well. You know, and also Lampard, it's his ex, ex-club as well. So it's, it's a scenario you're going into knowing that I don't think Everton will sack Lampard because I just think, they won't want to do another thing that's going to go make the fans go crazy at the moment, even though they've been really poor. Um, I don't think they'll do that. It's more likely with David Moyes, but I do believe that the experience of Moyes will eventually pay dividends for West Ham. Yeah, we'll see. I think um, I do think West Ham are more likely, more likely to change the manager's position. In terms of what you were saying about the transfer window, I do think they didn't necessarily get players in the mould of the team that they had when they were doing really well. People were like, we need a striker, and they just kind of got another striker in. Skamaka is not like Mikel Antonio, who was a winger come full back, come forward. 
um, who plays with a real intensity. He stretches teams. Physicality and stretches mm. teams, yeah. And then you have Paqueta, who's come into the midfield. And I think that was a, a move that was kind of like, we're West Ham, we're on an upward trajectory, let's try and get the best footballers that we can. No obvious role for him in terms of how West Ham mm. were playing previously. You're kind of like, is he going to play a bit deeper in midfield? What he's doing for Brazil? He could play wide. Is he going to play as a number 10 in behind? And and yeah, they're just, they're just not getting what they, sh- they were getting out of their squad previously. And I do think that there's a little bit of fatigue and tiredness there and maybe a mental um, fatigue in terms of playing in the Conference League. Mm. Maybe not where West Ham United want to be on those Thursday nights and maybe they just mm. would rather not be in that and focus on the league. Part of me thinks, where would they be without that? That's where they've had more of their wins this season. <laughs> I think they won all eight. And they won four Premier League games. No, I know, but I think um, like the, the, I, I think the atmosphere would be would be darker. I think no, but it? off the back of those games in Europe, especially last season, they they haven't done well in the league. So even though they it kind of masked it, they went far in Europe and it kind of masked the league form. And, and West Ham fans were on a huge high, of course, because of what they were doing in Europe. Ultimately, playing on Thursday nights has not helped their Premier League form. But it's I think think it is a significant factor because the fans really enjoy the European nights they really love them and that, I think that gives Moyes breathing space I think that's why he hasn't gone yet the problem actually. the problem for Moyes is he doesn't know what to do now uh, Tony just said it yeah. uh, you hear it you hear it in his, uh, in his interviews after the games I was at the, the Brentford game and you know people were asking the question you know you've, you've made a tactical change tonight you've, you've changed personnel like what do you do next and, and he doesn't have an answer mm. so that's the worrying thing he, he knows that there's more from the, more to come there should be more from these players to come but it's not coming so that's why I think he's probably on thinner ice even than Lampard with with all of these clubs uh, particularly down the bottom um, the January transfer window is going to be the big one West Ham you'd imagine at the moment is one of the clubs that is most attractive probably able to bring in financially some help on loan we'll see how the end of the January transfer window goes for them but you're looking at Wolves at the moment and the way that they're strengthening. I think Pablo Sarabia should be coming into the club. Was it Paris Saint-Germain, of course? They've already brought in Mateus Cunha from Atletico Madrid. They have had, and Julian Lopetegui, their manager, has had the desired effect. Um, but this extra quality, I think, could pull Wolves away. We got the win at the weekend, of course, against West Ham United. Um, but you're almost feeling a lot more confident that they won't be relegated, which will add pressure to the other teams. Well, what's happened at Wolves is they just do not look look, act, sound, feel like a club in trouble. I mean, you look at the table and you think, oh, they're in trouble, but they don't look like it at all. They'll have, they have to be fine. I mean, bouncy, bouncy, enthusiastic manager, good quality players, I mean, good quality players, fairly getting stronger with the self-belief. They look more of a unit when they play. That's why they'll be fine. They just, they just. I mean, you look at them now and you think, oh yeah, they shouldn't they be challenging for a place in Europe? They, I would say, of all the clubs in trouble, they have the personality of not being in there. See, from from my perspective, that I think it's quite an easy problem to solve is scoring goals. Now, from the outside, people go, it's the hardest thing to do. To me, it's not. If you prepare to get bodies into the eighteen-yard box, you'll score goals, and that has been their issue. They isolated players too much in the early part of the season. And then if you watched them on Saturday, they had a number of chances, created a lot of problems for West Ham. That is why they're going to score goals now. You know, wingers standing out on the touchline when the ball's on the other side. Solly Marsh has done that for Brighton numerous times. And watch Solly Marsh. He's a good footballer. Never got any goals. Yeah. In the Now he's at a map with a manager who's got him three in the last four games. Solly Marsh would never have got a brace, ever. 
in the way he was playing before. Well, I when, think it, I think he went fifty-two games. I think it was more. I think it was even more over sixty. I mean, when I saw the record, Solly Marks I'm hadn't talking scored. league games. Yeah, yeah, league games. hadn't scored in like two seasons in the league, yeah, pretty exactly. much. So outrageous. So why are Brighton scoring? No, I'm going off the league. So to me, it's like it's a lot easier problem to solve if you're prepared to get midfielders in the box and join forwards, get wingers into the box in certain areas. Why did Raheem score so much at, at City and other wingers getting goals? Because of where they're positioned when the ball is dropping or arriving. Mm. So I thought Wolves' problem, because I saw them at Spurs early in the season. They were terrific, lost 1-0. Their only problem was they had nothing top end. They couldn't score because no one was joining, whether it was Jimenez because he'd been injured as well. Whoever played, I can't remember who played up front that day. But to me, it's an easier problem to solve than conceding goals. Yeah. They, have had, they have had a few kind of additions, even if it's like Huang returning from injury. Yeah. yeah. As you say, Cunha and Jimenez. Now Jimenez came on and scored and it was obviously. Troy's come off back into the side, Andy Podence, and they, you know, they're dangerous. Suddenly players. they do look like they might they might have the goals they needed. That was yeah. that was their biggest problem. They yeah. had, they had I think they had a living after about yeah. fifteen games or something. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think they I think they look well placed to, to pull away. Lots of managers having a tough time. Uh, very quickly, at the bottom in particular, Gary O'Neill. Uh, Bournemouth's defeat by Brentford means it's one win in their past 10 in the league. Brendan Rodgers as well. Furious Leicester fans after their fourth straight Premier League defeat and the course that came at East Midlands rivals Nottingham Forest, who look like they are going to start pulling away. Um, let's start with Bournemouth. Heading towards relegation for you, Tony? Are they in trouble? Of course they are. I think what's... Sometimes when you get given the interim job and you're, you know, you're Gary O'Neill and you're being a bit more adventurous because you weren't going to be the first choice and then you go on a bit of a run and you win games and then everybody on the ball thinks, tell you what, the answer might be here. It might be already here for us to survive. And then once you get the job and then you have a couple of indifferent results, you get a little bit more pragmatic and try and stop scoring goals. Bournemouth don't look like I've got anything. I didn't see the game at Brentford the weekend. I only saw the highlights, but there was very little from Bournemouth. I did, I was there. Yeah. <laughs> well, Gregor, Gregor's better suited than me. So. There was very little in the game until the, the penalty decision, which was obviously highly contentious, and that changed the dy- dynamic of the game. And But it's true that Bournemouth had very, very little. They had one header from Kiefer Moore in the first half. Second half, they briefly flickered when uh, Suriki Dembele came off the bench, twisted up Ayer, uh, the, the, who was playing right back, and put in you know, a great save by, by Raya. But... Very little in attacking in attacking sense, and then the second goal was a bit of a, calam- a calamity between I think it was Mepham and Stacey. They both went for the same ball, allowed Josh Silva to go in and and uh, cross for Jensen to make it two 0 So Brentford almost kind of won that game in third gear. They didn't really they didn't play great. They didn't have to, and yes, the penalty changed it. But Bournemouth they have to stop conceding goals. Like it's as simple as that. You know, I said I think I said last week they've conceded between two and four. I think I said it was seven and nine, so that'd be about eight and ten, eight of the ten last ten games. You're down. You're down. They have to, they have to make some signings this month, and they keep saying, you know, Bill Foley's like the new owner. You're going to be backed. We're going to back you. We're going to spend big in this in this window, and as yet, nothing. Uh, Leicester, they need to wake up very, very soon. I think. I think they're one of the teams that falls in the category of the complacency of there will be three worse teams than us. <laughs> I think they're quite comfortable that they're going to stay up, but they, I mean four defeats in a row they're going to start blaming the manager Brendan Rodgers if they haven't already in terms of a, not necessarily criticising whether he's a good enough manager but you'll start hitting that point of people saying he's come to the end of the road with what he can do with this group of players etc etc 
He's and there are parallels with David Moyes, and he, he does look like he's at the end of ideas. He hasn't. Once you start admitting to the media that you don't really know how to get them to feel more responsibility out on the pitch, then I, I don't know why why you would admit that. But he's admitting that, and and also it's a weird trajectory, isn't it? Because they started so badly, and. The general vibe was, well, if the club could afford to sack him, they would. And he only kept his job because of financial considerations. And it paid off because they climbed out of trouble, started to look not exactly like a good Leicester, but a version of the better Leicester we've seen. And then it's it's all dropped off a cliff again, which is peculiar. You'd And that's where it comes down to, I think, it probably being the manager's fault because... That's a blessing. You've been you've been blessed with a second chance and you've made it work and you've started to play well. Why don't you build on that? That is peculiar, really peculiar. And I know there's been injuries and but everyone has that excuse. Every single Nine. team has that excuse. Nine. I'm no, gonna defend I still, them a I still bit I still think the starting eleven over the last few games have been, has been should have produced more than they've produced. Uh, undoubtedly, but nine injuries and a lot of them key players, James Madison included we have to remember that he has had his hands tied in terms of making any signings last summer. Five centre-halves come in, they desperately needed one, but they still have to play Daniel Amarty at centre-half in the Premier League. Good luck. Good luck. So, And, and again, Harvey Barnes, two misses. My yeah, God. Yeah, he needs My to God. Like, the, game, the game could have been very different. So, yes, Brendan Rodgers, there is a question mark about how he can deal with difficult periods. There was a turnaround. I think he won five or five or six, six games yeah. before the World Cup. That's a big turnaround. There is still this question mark, but there is undoubtedly uh, mitigation in this in this instance. Could, I think. Could you say like Smichael leaving the club in the summer? Big yep. name, been yep. there a long time. Vardy hardly used. Got one Premier League goal this season. You know they they've been two very important players. I mean Vardy's just seems like he's a young lad now that's given the odd chance and no more. Tielemans had his head Tielemans turned until... contract up at the end yeah. of the season. Yeah. He's on the bench every other week, isn't he? It's yeah, you good. know, it feels like there's a lot going on behind the scenes at Leicester um, that is affecting them on a weekly basis. And, and they're not, that's not all Brendan Rodgers' fault? No, of course, I'm not saying it's just Brendan, but it's... No, but none of that is... That's no, all circumstances around the club. And... I mean, look, I've got my... I do feel that Brendan is a little bit comfortable with some of his interviews and yeah, sometimes saying, well... Tillman's contract's coming up at the end and well and I just think well what part did you play in the summer with Schmeichel if you think Danny Ward's a better goalkeeper than Schmeichel then you're on another planet to me honestly I could not see that mm. Danny Ward is not as good as Schmeichel no no and but... he went for a million pound now you could say it's financial but a million pound for Leicester really that's a financial decision now Michael's never said a word after being at a club for 11 years about why he left. Well, they sold him. So. Well, but, but even so, there's not been anything in regards to Michael. No, no. I said, he wanted a longer deal, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah. okay. But, you know, On he's big never, money. We've never... Well, whatever reason, it, I get why the club wouldn't do that, but it didn't feel like that. It felt like it was more of a parting of a ways. It didn't end very nicely. All right, let's move on to some teams in the mid-table of the Premier League. Starting with Chelsea. Uh, Graham Potter, massive win for him. Beat Crystal Palace, yeah, by a goal to nil at Stamford Bridge. Alison, you watched it. 
how important was the three points for Potter? Um, was it a respond, a response, a strong response um, to his critics? Well, he looked healthier. So, you know, I was pleased for him in that sense. <laughs> yeah. I was starting to worry for his health, really was. They still look like a team shorn of first-choice players. They've still got 11 out. But a lot of what's wrong with Chelsea is there's, there's too much tinkering from Potter, actually. He should have tried to get a system going. But anyway, well, how, he, how he chose to play it at home against Palace, who I think are overrated, uh, was right. He embraced the youth at his disposal and the team moved the ball quicker from the back. They played Gallagher as part of a duo with Jorginho, but it worked. His energy worked because I remember when Gallagher used to put in these you know, amazing performances for Crystal Palace and we'd say, well, you know, where will he fit in with Chelsea when he goes back there? And it was hard to see a place for him. This is his place because he covers so much ground. He can be, he can pop up and defend the back line when necessary. But then you'll suddenly find him on the wing. You'll find him running into the penalty area. He he had freedom from that position. It, it really did work. And the team just seemed to take that as their cue to be on the front foot, energetic. They were completely different to the performance against Manchester City. They went for it. It wasn't flawless. They still they still don't look like the Chelsea we expect to see. Uh, it really helped. There was a lovely tribute to Viali before kickoff. It put the fans in a sort of generous frame of mind. They were really supportive of the team. There was a bit of jeering for Havertz early on because he's not a target man, so when they try and use him as one, it doesn't work. But generally, the uh, fans were with the team and they, they have been turning in the past. So all it all helped, but... All, you know, I wouldn't say this is the beginning of something, the new Potter era, because, I mean, Crystal Palace are going through odd phase. They can't beat teams in the top half of the table. All their shots were from distance. I, I'm, I worry about them slightly. Um, Vieira was monosyllabic afterwards. He was really cross because actually I think they played OK for them and they still didn't get anything out, out, out of the game. They're probably not in danger, but only because there's so many teams worse than them. But if it was a normal Premier League season, I would say they would they would have to be looking over their shoulder. Yeah, I think there were some odd decisions from Palace players as well. Kind of invited pressure from Chelsea far too often, uh, especially away from home. Good to see Graham Potter get a win, though, because I think had he lost this game, I mean, it would have been a bigger story. Uh, maybe off the weekend in terms of his future, still, I say, needs to... Uh, to keep the positivity going. Hopefully he can build on it in midweek. Anyway, let's end, shall we? On an incredible win for Brighton and Hove Albion. Unbelievable. I did wonder Rowe. if we weren't going to touch yeah, on this no, one we've today. got to. We've got to. They absolutely dominated Liverpool. 3-0 at the Amex. Incredible. Uh, Roberto De Zerbi says Brighton can now aim for Europe. I wonder if Liverpool can aim for Europe at this point in time. Uh, after 18 league games, Liverpool have scored fewer goals, conceded more, won fewer points and have a worse goal difference than at this stage of any previous full top flight campaign under Jurgen Klopp, who was appointed their manager in October of 2015. Jurgen Klopp himself said he couldn't remember a worse performance from his side. How big are Liverpool's problems at the moment? Liverpool, beautiful, beautiful porcelain doll. Someone comes along and knocks off the mantelpiece and you get the super glue out, but you can't stick it back together. <laughs> It's broken. Really? It's Irreparably. Broken. Well, do you need super glue, which is what we're using at the moment, or do you need something a bit more revolutionary? It's 
probably the midfield suddenly looks old and chasing the game. But it isn't, is it? It's not just one thing with Liverpool. It's 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 shattered so that one mistake leads to another mistake, which leads to something else looking like it's gone wrong. So I think you probably have to start with the midfield and then maybe that'll fix it. But I'm not I'm not hundred percent sure about that. I'm not saying clop out, I'm not saying he's done all he can do and he deserves the time to think about it and maybe maybe finish outside of Europe and have the summer to negotiate with the new owners whoever that might end up being and start again he deserves that he's got a lot of genius still left in him but at the moment Liverpool feel broken I think it's just what we've seen all season and yes it was at its very lowest point at this weekend I've talked about Liverpool facing one-on-ones on a regular basis. If I keep seeing Liverpool defenders running towards their own goal with the forwards or wingers in front of them, it's every week. Liverpool are an easy touch at the moment and Jurgen Klopp can't find a way. I keep going back to it, but the Thiago's position is a problem for Liverpool and the defenders are not good enough to be isolated against a forward. Any, I mean, they had a goal disallowed before they scored was marginally offside. This is nothing new for Liverpool. I mean, the stats tell you, one-on-ones, they're the team that will face the most one-on-ones. Alisson has pulled save after save off. If he had been half as good as he's been this year, Liverpool would be near the bottom end. I've seen performances against Nottingham Forest away, Leeds at home, Leicester, who we won against, we beat them, and you can go on and on. Wolves in the Cup, Napoli away, Fulham away. The list is endless of performances that Liverpool have got away with it this year. And say, well, say got away with it, they've lost, but could have took a way worse hammering. This has been going on nearly all season. And I'm like Alisson, I do not want to sack the manager of of the club I support, but I do think, Things have to dramatically change this summer. He's going to have to make some big calls on certain players of that club, whether he stays with them, because it feels like the time when Fergie had to get rid of players like Yapstam or or Roy Keane or Ruud van Nistelrooy, many others. That is now where I see Liverpool. He's got to make some big calls. Sell seller. I don't know which ones exactly. I say I do know. I do know. I would go, and people will hate what I'm going to say here, I'd really consider selling Van Dijk. And he didn't even play at the weekend. I thought you might say that, yeah. And a lot of people disagree with me and go, he's wonderful. I think Matip is another one I'm not con- not sure about with his injury record. And pl- I, look, there's there's others as well that I just feel... And as much as we might go, well, he's been fantastic. But I've watched Van Dijk all season. He's been in third gear. He played all season in a gear below what he's capable of. Unless Klopp can get that back, I would consider it. I think there's so much high-quality youth that's gone into the Liverpool squad that, it, of course, it's going to get a little bit worse before it gets better, particularly the intensity that Liverpool play at, the demands of, of Jurgen Klopp from, from his players as professionals, that I thought it, you know, it was always going to be this way, but I think there are enough good young players. The decision that you make in the summer is whether you just go, this is, the, this is going to be the complete blueprint, and we are going to get rid of the older players in the squad, and we're going to strip it back, and it might be two or three seasons before we're regularly back in the top four and competing for the biggest trophies. But these players will improve. I mean, a front three of Nunez, uh, Gakpo, Diaz when he's back fit. You know, I think most They'll goals... they goals with any of their Yeah, guys. we'd be absolutely desperate to have that. Um, you've brought in the likes of Carvalho and Elliot as young, great young players who've shown that they've got 
very bright futures. You've still got some of those that we know about. The likes of Trent Alexander-Arnold's going to be at Liverpool for his whole career, and he's still got plenty more to give. He hasn't had a great season. Jones. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there are there are plenty of good young players at Liverpool, very young, but even under twenty five, where you'd say like, right, let's you know the older players, the ones above that, let's start cashing in and then bringing in better or high potential under 25 players and say, look, we've got one of the best managers in the world. He's going to turn potential into greatness. And, and that's our our blueprint going forward. As You're not going to spend Manchester City money. So I, I don't see how Jurgen Klopp can expect the high standards from the team that he's currently got out there. Okay, there's injuries, but still they're just not, they're not at it. It's, it's been said, like, the, the intensity is the number one issue. There's a lot of issues, but that's the number one because it does leave them so exposed, so many spaces mm. in midfield. As Tony says, so often you look, look like the defenders are just panicking, running behind Trent Alexander against Matoma. My goodness! Mm. Well, but shall we of... just also we always discuss them, and what about Brighton? Like we do this every week, and it's we keep doing it. They they were outstanding. They were like they had the intensity that Liverpool we used to know Liverpool for. They forced errors. They were running all to, all over them. You know, pressing them really high. I really lo- I love Evan Ferguson as well. Yeah, it's eighteen year old kids pinning Matip and Konati, and you know. He looks like a grown man. I mean, he he does, yeah. He it's does. Ridiculous. He does. Um, Every time I see him, I'm like, is that, was that Evan Ferguson again? I mean, he's yeah. just, it's crazy. <laughs> it's brilliant. I mean, Lalana is a free transfer from Liverpool, what, three years ago? Mm. <laughs> he's running the show. Wilbeck's a free transfer. Veltman was 800 grand. You go through the team, and I totally agree with Gregor on the fact that the energy is there, and but it surprises me that Liverpool can't even match that. It's because they know that. And let's, once once you take once you go down from fifth gear with Liverpool, it it doesn't work. So it, like a house it, of cards it, comes it, crumbling it, down. Yeah. But are they fatigued from the last few three or four seasons of playing that way? No, but if you're if you're if you're built around playing that way, and then you stop playing that way, you've got nothing. I know what you're saying, but I'm asking what, what's you. Left? What's, I'm left? Asking you disjoint, what's left? What's left is disjointed. I know, but I'm asking you: Are they under fifth gear? because of the fact that they are fatigued from playing that way for so long. It hasn't been a deep squad necessarily either at Liverpool where you'd say, you know, we know the best 11 and even then they've brought in players to be 13th, 14th, 15th choice and they've already gone because they weren't good enough. You know, that first 12 have been worked very, very hard over the last few years. So... Well, you could, are, are they tired? Are they, you know? Well, you could make an argument that, that all costs last year they were, you know, fighting on four fronts. And you could make that point. And did it disrupt their, their pre-season? I think you could probably make that argument. Now, could you look and say, well, this is really trivial that they got beat by 4-0 by, with a weakened Liverpool team against Man United and that pre-season just didn't happen like it normally would? You could make all them points. They entered the first game of the season against Fulham away. And I'm, I was remember just sitting in my lounge watching it and thinking... Wow, Liverpool are so off it. In the opening game of this season, and the evidence was there, should have lost. Should have lost at Fulham. And I, I immediately I kept thinking, well, OK, it's the first game of the season. We give the old clichéd excuse. That's the first game of the season. Then we give them the excuse of, oh, it was pre-season. It doesn't really matter. And then we get into game four and five. And we see a bit of a resurgence. Liverpool have not been good. Month by month, they've not been good. I think you could probably pick one month where just before the World Cup where they looked like they were back on track yeah, yeah. and that's it. And no one has any concerns over Jurgen Klopp, of course. He's got the stripes. He's got the in the bank to rebuild this team uh, and that I am confident of but there's going to have to be some massive decisions at the club. 
Uh, look, I think for a few of these teams as well, what happens with the ownership going forward it will be a big thing, and that will certainly be the case at Liverpool, who were not at their best this weekend. I've got to say, we had to do an extended podcast because there were so many big stories and talking points that came out of this weekend. So thank you very much for staying with us. Alison Rudd, Tony Cascarino, Gregor Robertson, thank you for being great company once again. Uh, remember, certainly on a Monday, to check out the game. Uh, pick up a newspaper wherever you can. You can also go online, thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Download the Times app as well for more of our great journalism. Uh, we'll be back with you on Thursday, so we'll see you then. Take care. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.